Welcome to episode 140. Today, Dr. Don Vu will share how to foster a culture of reading for immigrant and refugee children. Welcome to the Teaching Multilingual Learners podcast. This podcast celebrates teachers who answer the calling to serve multilingual students and their families. Your beautiful smile, your beautiful life are waiting for you to shine bright. It's never too early or late to start to rise up and shine. Your beautiful smile, your beautiful life are waiting for you to shine bright. It's never too early or late to start to rise up and shine. Imagine if your school was recognized by the International Literacy Association with the Exemplary Reading Program Award. What would it take to earn such a prestigious honor? Dr. Don Vu and his colleagues were able to do exactly that at their school that serves a socially and economically diverse community. In this moving podcast, we'll learn not just how to create a culture of reading, but why we need to maintain and foster a love of reading among students, especially immigrant and refugee students. Stay to the end of the podcast when you will hear Dr. Vu treat us to a moving reading of one of his preludes. Now, on to today's podcast. Of all my interviews this year so far, I think I am most excited for this podcast today with Dr. Don Vu. He recently published a book about a year ago called Life, Literacy, and the Pursuit of Happiness, Supporting Our Immigrant and Refugee Children Through the Power of Reading. You had me at the title, and then you kept me at the subtitle. So Dr. Don Vu, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks, Ton. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. It's an honor. Could you tell us about um, your current work position and so listeners have a little context of where you are? Sure. Um, so currently I am writing, um, consulting, and, and working with school districts um, and literacy organizations on just ideas for my book on literacy, um, working with immigrants and refugees and uh, engaging families. So I've been, I've been in education for about 20, 40 years as a teacher in Oakland, California, as an assistant principal and principal in San Jose. And uh, the last six years, I, I was principal at a, a school in Northern California, uh, near Sacramento, California. Um, and all the schools I've been in have been Title I schools, um, you know, large populations of uh, students who are coming from socioeconomically uh, disadvantaged situations uh, and large, large multilingual populations. Um, and I think a lot of the reason why is just because that's it's kind of my passion uh, in terms of working with um, students and families that have um, have been in the margins of society and, and, and schools and, uh, and, and working hard to ensure that they, they, they get a fair shake in the American dream. And so um, 
so that's that's it. The, a few months before the pandemic, I actually took a leave from my my principal job a few months before, and I had no idea. Um, just to kind of finish up writing the book and uh, and doing just doing some more creative work, um, I was kind of shocked that a few months after that, um, after leaving, you know, the pandemic hit, and it's been about two two and a half years um, since that time, and since I've been out of schools, eventually I will go back to schools. I do miss a lot of the, the, the fun things that are happening that have happened. Uh, a lot of the, 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 the families and the communities, uh, I miss that work. Um, and I know that right now it's a very difficult time for schools. Um, but you know, eventually I, I, I will come back, uh, to work with kids and, and, and parents and teachers. I think the thing that I really gravitated towards in your profile was that you were a principal and then you're a principal of color, right? Mm. In serving a community of color. And I thought like, wow. And our field, we, it's predominantly, um, the representation is mostly uh, white women, but yet in the the education field, yet to see uh, um, an Asian male in leadership is uh, quite refreshing to see that because you get to share a different perspective. Yeah, I think that's that's really important, Tan. I mean, um, you know, I it's it's kind of funny because in the district that I was just in, I was the only Asian American. There was one more person, but the only Asian American on on the leadership team. There's like 30, 30 people on it. Uh, like you said, everybody else is pretty homogenous, uh, and and so it's. It's kind of it's it's unfortunately rare, but you know I, I know that there are a lot of organizations right now like Ka- Apple, uh, the California Administrators Asian American Administrators Association in California that are kind of focused on you know recruiting teachers uh, into those leadership positions because I think it's important not only for the kids and we lo- we talked a little bit offline about windows and mirrors right. Uh, with books, but it's also important for them to see, for for students to see, you know, people of different uh, backgrounds in those positions, right? It's important for the the Asian American students, but also for um, for all the students, so that they they kind of understand what the world looks like. Um, and so that I, I I really do think that, you know. It's improving, but there's still a lot of work to be done in terms of representation in, the, in that in that area. Um, and you know, a lot of it's recruiting. A lot of it's you know, um, just really encouraging people to 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 take that next step to make a difference uh, in their schools. So, if there are uh, BIPOC teachers who are listening now, if you're considering uh, going into leadership, we encourage you to do that. Let's dive into a story about uh, your teaching practice that has really informed your practice today. Hmm. So this this is a story about me teaching, but it was when I was the principal a few years ago. Um, and I was working with a group of, of second graders and we had this school-wide read aloud and it was Malala's Magic Pencils. Uh, written by Malala Yousafzai, the, the, the youngest 
uh, Nobel Peace Prize winner. Um, and she wrote this book about her life, uh, about you know her, her life in Pakistan. And uh, we had the whole school read it together. And I was reading it aloud with a group of kids, second graders. And uh, I noticed a little girl uh, listening really intently. She was just, and she had a hijab on and she was just like stroking and she looked pretty happy listening to the story. And, and so I took that opportunity. I said, Hey, uh, and I said, what, what do you, what do you think about this book? You know, what do you, and she just, you know, she, she responded she, really quickly. And she said, you know, I'm, I'm proud of that Malala is wearing a hijab like me. And you know, it's it, it struck me because I, I I remember a few years before that, right? A lot of our Muslim families were were sending their girls to school without without hijabs. Um, you know, there there was a, a big backlash after nine eleven, and um, there was fear of retaliation, fear of prejudice, and and, and discrimination, and and I just remember that it, it, it just reminded me that, you know, books and stories are powerful, right? That, that sharing the right books can change lives. And, you know, it was just, uh, it was a good reminder for me. And it, it kind of just made me more passionate about the work, about, uh, about literacy and, and sharing those stories to, to reflect our kids and to, to, to really, to really change the world. You know, I remember back in the nineties when I was teaching in Oakland, um, I, I, I remember that it was really hard to get multicultural books, all right? I mean, we, we'd be able to pick up the books on Martin Luther King, on Rosa Parks, um, but I was just ecstatic if I found a book on, that featured a Vietnamese character. Right, or that featured an Asian American character or a Mexican American um, hero. We, could, we didn't have that. So, you know, like decades later, um, it's getting better, right? It's getting better. It's still not where we need it to be, um, but you can find those books and you can find those stories that reflect our kids. And so, so that's kind of the, one of the, the, my teaching lessons. It's, it's that that you know these the stories can make a huge difference in in the lives of our kids and our families i think you wrote i wrote down the words you said uh, when we share books they can change lives because books are representation and when we when a student is representing the culture in the literature mm -hmm. they feel like they are valued yeah and they feel like they can contribute from their experience, from their cultures. And it's not just, oh, I have yeah. to, there's a separation between school and home. And that, and when we share books that are more representative of our students, that divide it melts away. I, I, I completely agree. And you know, when we don't, right? When the kids don't see books about themselves or about people who look like them, then it tells a different story, right? It, 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 tells it gives them well, it teaches them a lesson that you know their stories are not that important you know in the school or in the society and that becomes a problem 
for all of us too. It's giving a voice to the voiceless through pictures, yeah. books, through books, right? Every book has a seed. What was the seed for this book? And why write a book for children of refugees? Okay, so, <laughs> so the story is uh, 2018. 2018, uh, I, my school had just received the, the Exemplary Reading Program Award. And so I went to, to Austin, Texas to, uh, to the International Literacy Association Conference to get the award. And uh, I met up with a, an editor from a, um, from a publishing company and uh, we talked and we were like, okay, well, maybe I can write a book on building a culture of literacy. Um, and so that was the focus, right? Building a culture of literacy. And I spent about a year and a half writing you know, a draft of it, then like six pages, uh, six chapters of this book. And, uh, and we had gone back and forth uh, with this editor. And uh, it was October 23rd, 2019. I remember that date because it was my birthday. Um, he said, okay, um, we're going to take your, your, your book proposal and we're going to take it to the editorial board and uh, get it okayed to be published. And so I thought, cool, you know, after a year and a half, yeah. And he called me back later that day and said, hey, Don, guess what? Um, they said, no. They said, they're not going to go forward with publishing this book. And I was like shocked. And I was like, wait, 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 wait. We, we spent a year and a half going back and forth um, working on this, this book and they don't want to publish it. And I said, what happened? And he said, well, you know, here are a few things. One, they said it sounded like a textbook. Um, and they said that there are a lot of, there are a lot of other books that, that were focused on building a culture of literacy, you know, um, Stephen Lane had a book out, uh, a, a few other people. And, uh, and I was like devastated, right? I was like, I can't believe I just wasted uh, a year and a half. Uh, but then part of me was kind of relieved because at that point I, I didn't disagree with what they said. I, I did feel like I didn't have a voice in it after all the, the editing. And I did feel like it was a textbook and I, I just wasn't really passionate about what I had written. And so, so I, you know, I asked him, I said, so what do we do next? And he said, well, good luck. <laughs> and that was kind of, that was the, that was it. And so after like a day or two of just moping around, I just decided, okay, well, I'm going to just kind of write, you know, what I'm passionate about, what I really want to, to, to talk about. And so I, I, I put that focus towards, you know, what I've, what I know, what I've worked with and, you know, a lot of my background is in the book too. So a lot of my life and I wrote, I wrote about immigrants and refugees and how we can help immigrants and refugees through the power of reading. And I wrote like nonstop for, a, I want to say months. It was just like, I just kind of did it. And, uh, and it came out. And uh, after a, 
couple of months, I had a draft of a few chapters and I shared it with a few people and a few of my friends shared it with other friends and somebody from Scholastic uh, looked at it and uh, it was Lewis Bridges, my, my, the editor who published this book. Um, she picked it up and she just said, hey, um, I want to publish this book. And, uh, and I worked with her for about a year after that. And uh, we went back and forth and just kind of, um, and that's how, that's kind of how it happened. Um, but yeah, it was just like a kind of an up and down journey to get this book published. Right. It was a, it, I remember listening to that in another podcast and I was like, he worked in a year and a half and it got rejected. <laughs> and then, yeah. and then you I didn't like, know how it worked. I didn't know how the, the system worked. And so I thought, okay, well, you know, it's probably going to be okay. And then. I was kind of shocked that it just dead ended right there, but you know the the edit my first editor um, I'm I'm not gonna say who it is but um, we're we're still good friends and he's a really good guy um, he, you know he's helped looked at a lot of my my current work and so it's it's been it's been a good experience I mean it's it's a good story I guess right well I'm happy that you didn't give up, right? You just said, okay, well, how can I do this in a different way? And you wrote yeah. from your heart. And that's actually one of the features of your book that is just, when you read the reviews and when you listen to other people's conversations about uh, your podcast, yeah. when you're on a podcast, they talk about the format. And every single chapter yeah. uh, starts with a little prologue. And maybe at the end of the podcast, would you mind reading one of the prologue, uh, one of the preludes for us, anyone? Sure, um, sure. I just really, it, it, it added, your prologue added a level of humanity to the writing and it became less academic, but still we are, there's still research in your writing, but it, it added a humanity, a level of humanity to your writing, which is quite unique and beautiful. It reminded me of the great Kylene Beers. Mm. She wrote a book, when kids, can, when kids Can't Read What Teachers Can Do, she started about a, a story about, her, about a student who she wasn't able to reach and she she walked us through talking about that student throughout the entire book. And that I felt like when I was reading your book, I was like, I'm following your path. Mm, yeah, no, that that that's that's the intent, right? It's because the work we do. And you, and, and, you, and you know this, I mean, it's the work we do without the, you know, that personal connection. It's it's only half of of the work, right? It's it, you're only doing half of the works. And so my intent was to not only tell my story, um, but also to, to have people connect to, and to really, you know, really feel like they've gotten to know a refugee, right? And to, to really understand, you know, some of the, the personal aspects of it, and also to to maybe feel like, hey, you know, I have this connection with Don's story and, you know, it's going to help me maybe do work in my schools with my other immigrants and refugees. And so that was the intent, yeah. Well, could you tell us more about that? Then why write a book for refugees, about refugee children? Well, because that's, because one, that's what I know. That's, that's who I am. Um, and that's who I've worked with for, you know, most of my career. I mean, I see, and it's not only the children, but also the, the, the parents, right? I mean, anytime 
you know, anytime a parent who comes to me, you know, when I was a teacher or even a principal, when, you know, they come to me and they say, hey, can you help my kid out, you know, in their broken English, right? But, you know, I see my parents, I see my mom coming up to, you know, the school, and I know how hard it is for immigrant parents to, to do that, right? It's not only the linguistic, but the cultural stuff that, you know, but I, so I, I understand how difficult it is. And, and so when I, when I, when I see that, you know, I'll do everything I can to, 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 to help them, to help their children to, because that's, I mean, that's because I know that story, right? That's kind of the story of all immigrants and refugees. And so that's, and when you have the power in schools to do that work, when you have the power to make that difference, then, you know, you think you have to do it. I was listening to a podcast and someone said, when you write a book, you write from what you know and uh, from what you've grown, how you've grown and mistakes you've made. Because you're most positioned to reflect back on things you did or things that happened and how you've grown from them. And so that's your book. Yeah. Can you tell us about what are the what are the conditions uh, to create a culture of literacy? Well, uh, you know, it's just I had six conditions, um, and it's it's pretty much basically organizing the ideas on how to build a culture of literacy, uh, a culture of reading in schools for all, right? And the conditions are based on the research that you've seen, the, the reading research and successful practices in schools um, from others, from my experience as a teacher, as a, as a principal. And the, the conditions uh, I have down as commitment, right? Um, clock, uh, conversation, connection, collection, and celebration. And so those are six things that you kind of have to think about when building a, a culture of reading in schools. I focus on the needs of immigrants and refugee students. Um, along that, you know, you have the students who've traditionally struggled, like the special ed students would benefit from, uh, from some, a lot of these ideas. The students who have, you know, str- struggled in school traditionally. Um, so, um, so that, that's kind of the idea. It's like, you know, just an organization, organization of the ideas on building a culture of literacy. Um, and, I, and I start with commitment, which is um, the idea that, you know, you have to commit to, to, to improving yourself as an educator, to, to opening up your, your, um, your personal bubble so that you can, you can understand and, and, and help students who are different from you. Would you like to talk about the other five C's? Um, sure. Um, clock is pretty much the idea that um, the idea that the more the more kids read, um, the better readers they become, and so the idea that you you want to provide as many opportunities for kids to read independently as possible, and uh, you know there are some considerations when working with students. Who are refugees and immigrants? Uh, linguistic 
and also the fact that you know a lot of them may not have opportunities to to read independently at home due to uh, the lack of of books at home or the lack of somebody who's able to read to them at home so you know how do you make up for that in schools before and after school during lunch time uh, you know outside of the independent reading time that you provide them uh, in class uh, conversation I talk about well I pulled the, the research that talks about um, the importance of having literate conversations right um, informal conversations and that's you know easily accessible um, for kids who are who are just learning English um, multi multilingual learners so how do, how do you have those informal conversations and promote those in schools um, connection it's you know the discussion about windows and, and mirrors and and sliding glass doors uh Rudine Sims Bishop you, you know how, how do you connect kids and what do you do after you have those books um you know what do you do after you have a diverse uh library uh, and those are some considerations to have uh collection it's it's making sure that you surround kids with lots of books and uh and and that has been a problem in, in a lot of areas um, where kids don't have access to books um, they don't have access to books when they go on vacation uh, during the summer and, the, and and people talk about you know maybe the, the issues of kids falling behind um, and th and that's a that's a real thing where you know kids don't have those opportunities to to practice reading or to to enjoy reading during the summer and and so how do you how do you make up for that in schools and and the last condition is celebrating celebration which is just the idea that you know it it, it has to be fun right it has to be engaging and 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 as a school the adults and the kids. The families, the staff—they, um, we need to to set aside that time to celebrate um, stories, and to celebrate one another through stories. And so, uh, so I, I I talk about that in the in the sixth condition, which is you know, let's kind of focus on the joy of reading, right? And and that's kind of how we we build lifelong learners. Uh, lifelong readers is is to to really make that connection. Yeah, I when you were describing all the six C's. Oh, by the way, very clever of C as in culture, but also the the alliteration of C's throughout. That is very cool. <laughs> <laughs> I can tell you were an English teacher or or fond of uh, English literature. Uh, uh, yes, yes. But you know, the funny thing is, like everybody has like there's you know there's six C's. I've seen that. Didn't you guys have you had that somewhere too? I think. Yeah. Uh, C's, yeah. you know, I or D's or T's. Yeah. It's it's kind of funny, but it, you know, it makes it a little bit easier to remember. Right. Right. And yeah. that's when it's easier to remember, it's easier to implement. So let's yeah. talk about implementation. Can you take us into one of your teachers' classrooms when you, when because I would love to see what it's like to be at a blue ribbon school where you got an award for literacy. Like, 
to a hypothetical teacher or, or a former colleague? Well, one, the classroom, what it looks like is it's, I, I think it's, that has to be defined, right? You need to make sure you need to make sure that the classroom library is is pretty well stocked, and uh, and so when you walk into the classroom, you you know you you have you're surrounded by books, and we we did that we we actually spent a lot of money on classroom libraries. I a few years ago, I I I just decided with my team that you know if we're gonna have classroom libraries, we need to prioritize and we need to uh, fund them. So we, we spent um, hundreds of dollars every year just having teachers buy books for their classroom libraries, which was, you know, which is, is great, one, because you get the, you know, you get the books to the kids, and, but, but two, you, you engage teachers, uh, you know, on a certain level where they have to kind of know what's out there, right? So they have to kind of, research the books that are out there, the new cool books, um, children's books, and also um, that they're, they're engaged with their kids so that they kind of understand what the kids like in terms of, you know, what their interests are, because that's important too. So we, we would give interest surveys, um, like what, what were their hobbies? What were they interested in? Do they like fiction books? Do they like nonfiction books what were the topics that they really liked and so you know that based on that we'd get books um but you know um teachers would uh if you if you walked in there would be a lot of read alouds a lot of discussions on books you know kids listening asking questions um you know as they're reading aloud that 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 was important to have those types of conversations so that um so that the comprehension was there. Uh, and, you know, the research tells you that, you know, five to 10 minutes a day of, of those conversations, of those literate conversations, um, improve reading comprehension better than any strategy, uh, any other strategy. And so, you know, a lot of conversations, a lot of kids talking to one another about, about stories and books, um, a lot of creativity, so kids are, are creating their own stories um, and connecting with other stories. So, so that's kind of like the, the fun part of it all. Um, but also you, you, you do want to talk about, you do want to address some of the, the needs and that's in terms of like, you know, the basic foundational skills of reading. So that, that's something that we we don't want to forget about, right? It's like you we do need to teach kids how to read, and so there was a lot of a lot of work on that too. Um, so there's a balance, you know, and you hear about that a lot nowadays, right? That you know the balance of of teaching kids how to read and getting kids to really love to read, uh, and so we 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 shared our kids in terms of working with you know, skill levels and, and, you know, really having a common language um, so that, you know, no matter who your teacher is, we knew exactly where the kids were in terms of their needs and their reading needs. And, uh, and again, a lot of, uh, a lot of fun stuff, right. Connecting the fun stuff with, um, with reading and stories. So um, fun activities, um, 
like having kids do book talks with one another, recording it on um, on video. And we we did a lot of uh, book talks and, and read alouds on videos where we would share it on our little YouTube channel internally with with our students and uh, and and just that really kind of engaged you know kids and teachers and adults and just kind of promoted that culture it's like it's not one thing right because you can't have just one or two different strategies and think that you you're building a culture it's just like it's an ongoing thing and it's uh something that doesn't happen overnight i mean it, we were working for about five years before we we were recognized for any of the the work before we got the the uh, recognition from the International Literacy Association, and so it's uh, it's it's a lot of work, but it's it's fun work. I mean, it's it's stuff that when it when it's done right, it becomes um, it it becomes easier, and you know a lot of creative things happen um, because of that, because of the culture, and because people are kind of on that same vision or had that same vision on that same path to 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 really engage kids and so that's that's kind of what you would see i mean i think i have to applaud your leadership because the the pressure of testing that's happening in american schools and also now in other uh, schools around the world they've the teachers feel so pressured to teach the test that they're not not giving time anymore to reading right and that yeah right and the sad part is like that's actually the thing that actually helps kids the most in reading comprehension. Like, I know that my students who are the best readers, or the most avid readers, are the ones that are the best and proficient writers. Yeah, the research tells you that, right? right? I mean, the data tells you that. And, you know, we we did all that fun stuff and we got the award, but we actually, I mean, it, it, it goes in hand, it goes hand in hand, right, Tom? Because that that same year we got the award um and i totally acknowledge the testing because it is stressful and you're right i mean it's like it's crazy anxiety ridden during that time during this time of year right now because this is when the the state testing happens and every year you know you have the, the report card that comes out um, that tells you if you're doing well or not and you're you know and that same year that we got the award um for all the fun and cool stuff that we're doing. Um, in, in California, we have this dashboard, um, but every, every area on the dashboard, we exceeded, met or exceeded the, um, the criteria, uh, and which is kind of rare uh, for a lot of Title I schools. And a few months after that, we, uh, earned the California Distinguished School Award based on the data, based on the test scores and based on, you know, the work that we were doing. So, yeah, I mean, you know, it, you, you do the work and it's, it's not, I mean, we're an example of it. it, it you don't, you're not sacrificing, you know, the, the testing and all that because eventually it will show, right? You, you have kids reading more, you have kids becoming better readers and uh, it will show on the on the testing, uh, but yeah, unfortunately, there is a lot of you know anxiety when it comes to testing, and that's you know that's a, as a school leader, there there is I, I totally understand. There's there's this thing. Okay, well, do you like do 
test prep, which we did, um, but you know, you, you can't let it control everything that you're doing. Um, and that's the dilemma. That's a, that's a really good point, Todd. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, as a social studies teacher right now, I still make time for my kids, like five to seven minutes a day, they read. Whenever they come into my class, it's the first thing they do. And once in a while, like every two weeks or every other week, I might have my kids turn and talk to the partners after this like five minutes of silence. They're trying to talk to the partners and they say, tell your partner, would you read this book or not? And so they're they're doing little book talks together. Yeah. Right? And that's all it is. Is that the yeah, kind of culture? That's important. Right. Speaking of culture, can we now move to a little bit of from away from your school and then more of uh, your own personal experience? What was your literacy experience like as a refugee student? Well, um, I was you know, I was a uh, English learner, right? So I came to school speaking only Vietnamese, obviously, just because my parents um, were speaking Vietnamese at home. And so I, I, you know, I remember being pulled out with other kids in small groups. Um, and a lot of them um, were, you know, were Mexican-American. I, I, I'm, I'm guessing a lot of them were children of migrant farm workers because uh, I grew up in the Central Valley of California. And that's kind of, you know, the, that was the population. It was, um, you know, a few refugees, which was me, my brother, my brothers, my cousin, and, uh, and a few migrant children of migrant farm workers. And so, you know, I, I remember working on in small groups, learning English. Um, but, you know, like a lot of, a lot of kids, and and you and you know, there's a lot of kids. We learn English too, through you know TV, through social interactions with other kids. And you know, for for some of us, yeah, it's it's not too difficult. And you know, we we pick it up. And I was lucky. I was lucky because I was able to pick it up um, pretty pretty quickly. Um, but I remember when I was old enough, I I was. He, I loved going to the library, the local library, um, and I'd ride my bike over. And I, I loved just exploring the books, seeing, really seeing the world through books, um, because we, you know, we refugees and immigrant families, most of the time they don't have the resources to to travel to, you know, to to have these experiences um, like camps during the summer or whatever it is. So, so books really helped me explore the world and, and really built, it helped me build background knowledge, which is something that I really stress to, to teachers, to, to educators is that's one thing that a lot of our kids who struggle don't have. It's that background knowledge, right? It's like, you know, when their families don't have uh, the resources to, to, take them to Calego camp during the summer or to even go camping during the summer. Um, they don't, they, they can't make those connections that they will eventually have to make in school. And so, and so books kind of fill in that, that void sometimes. And, and, and so for me, I, th I think that's kind of what happened. It was like, you know, I, I kind of immersed myself in books and stories and, and literacy and, 
helped me fill in those voids. And so I was able to kind of understand what it was like to, um, you know, I, I remember as a kid reading a book on Albert Einstein, right? And remember the part where he was backpacking and uh, looking up at the stars. And, uh, you know, not only was that inspirational, but, you know, it, it got me to, to really want to understand science a little bit more. And so I was really into astronomy for a while. Um, and then I read books on astronomy and, and made those connections. Um, but, you know, literacy was a way for me to, to really, literacy and books and reading were, were windows to the world for me. You're right. Every time I read a book, it takes me to a new place. And currently I'm reading a book called Unwanted. Uh, it's about the Syrians, uh, the Syrian mm. refugees. And it's, it, I, even though I'm on my bed like reading, it's taking me to refugee camps. It's taking me under the bridge where the people are hiding. It's taking me right in front of that fence, that barbed wire fence. Right? Yeah. Like, oh my goodness. It's taking me on that, that, uh, that dinghy where people are put into, crowded onto these flo um, floating boats and then how mm. waves like to like toss them over and it's like taking me there as you can see in a different way and i also found that my students who are who read the most are the most inclusive and kind students in the school or my mm. class because right? they feel like oh i've seen this before in a different yeah. way yeah they know they they know the stories right they know the you know maybe they know the personal they, they have those personal connections through those stories right and that's kind of that's how you I mean, that's how you build empathy or sympathy for, you know, those people that you don't know. It's like to know their personal stories, right? That's, that's true. So you talked about going to the library uh, and, and that opening up your world to so many other worlds. What was your parents' involvement in literacy? There, uh, I'm trying to ask this question because I want to yeah. see what teachers can do to partner with their refugee and, and they're just the families on how to support students in their language development. I don't know if it's common or uncommon. My parents were all were like hands off in terms of my um, education. I don't think my I don't think my parents ever went to any of my school events. You know, they never showed up. Um, one, par partly because they were always working, right? And two, because I had, you know, younger brothers and sisters, they probably couldn't just like take off and, and go. And I, you know, honestly, I, there was a lot of resentment like growing up because I was like, okay, I was in the band and uh, they never showed up for any of the concerts or any of that, right? And I'd be sitting there and all my other friends would, you know, would have their parents sitting there watching and, and so there was, a, you know, I, I didn't understand it. And I didn't understand some of the, we talked a little bit about this, right? Some of the, the barriers that immigrant refugee parents face, right? When it comes to going into the school. And also I think it's cultural too. Like Vietnamese parents are always like, okay, well, I'll do the parenting at home. The school, you guys take care of, you know, the teachers will take care of the, the education. And that, you know, they, and they, they were always encouraging, you know, or at least expecting me to do well in school, right? 
<laughs> you're laughing because you're like, yeah, there's a difference between encouraging and expecting. And I think Vietnamese parents are like, okay, I expect you to do well. Um, and so it was, it's, you know, that, that was kind of my experience. You know, the, the funny thing is I talked to my wife and her mom was different. And her mom had the same English, English skills as my parents in, in terms of like, you know, they, they, broke, uh, they, they spoke broken English, right? And they, they had those barriers, those, ling- those language barriers. But her mom would be very involved. She would come in, didn't speak English, but would come in and go to the PTA meetings, bring her egg rolls and, uh, you know, and really, and make, make, make her translate for her. Say, what are they saying? It's kind of like, you know, um, have you seen that movie Coda? Con? No, I need to see it though. I heard it, it won an award. Oh, it, it was like the best picture, uh, best movie in the, it won an Oscar, right? Best movie. But um, so, I watched it after the Oscars and it's like one of the best movies I've seen because it's about, well, I'll, I'll give you a short thing, right? It's about um, this, this coda means a uh, child of deaf adults. That's the acronym. So it's, it's about this young high schooler who grew up and her, her mom and dad are deaf and her brother is deaf. Her older brother is deaf. And uh, it's about her life and, the fact that, you know, they rely on her, you know, it's a close knit family. They rely on her to translate the world to, to them because she can sign and she can hear. And, uh, you know, she's like, you know, in, in, in the doctor's office translating for her, her parents. Um, and so it's pretty funny and awkward, but, you know, we're watching it. My family and I were watching it and I turned to my wife and she's crying. You know, she's crying because she connects to the story, right? And even though, you know, it's, you know, they're not deaf, her parents, but she understands that that pressure that a child has translating and being the translator of the world to your family. I mean, that was like such a a big connection to her that, you know, it, it touched her and it moved her. And, you know, that, that was something that, you know, again, like, you know, stories make a difference in, 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 in lives. And, you know, this is just a mirror that she was able to see, but, you know, for her, her parents, she had to translate. And so her mom was just like, always, okay, come to school, PTA meeting, you know, your, your parent teacher conference, whatever meeting it is. Um, her mom really wanted to be involved. You know, and, you know, and it's kind of funny because she was telling me the story how she was actually being kind of bullied by my, my wife as when she was in second, third grade, she was being bullied by one of the campus supervisors, the yard duties. And, you know, this lady was pretty mean to her. And so she went home and told her mom that, you know, this lady, you know, just always yelling at me and I don't, you know, I don't, I don't do anything. She's, I think she doesn't. And so, so her mom was like, okay, well, I want you to write this down. And she, you know, spoke in Vietnamese and she said, okay, you know, this is the daughter of Maria Vu 
da, 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 da. you know, please, you know, if you have a problem, let me know. Um, if you have a problem, talk to, you know, call, call me or uh, we'll set up a meeting. But, you know, this lady, you know, saying to this in Vietnamese and having my, you know, having her daughter translate it into English so that she can give it to this lady. And, uh, you know, the next day she gave that letter to the yard duty. And she was like, um, you wrote this, all right? And Maria was like, yeah, I did write this. My, my mom can't write in English, but this, but she told me to, she wrote, I, I wrote exactly what she said. And, uh, you know, and I thought that was really touching. It's like, you know, this, this refugee woman who doesn't speak English has that audacity, right? The audacity of equality which I talk about, right, in the, in the book, has that, th that idea that, you know, I and my child have equal rights to be here, to, to, to go for the American dream, to, 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 to live a free life. And, uh, you know, and I, and I will fight for that right. You know, so very inspirational woman. Yes, your wife's mother is. A, I, we in the in the Asian community we call that a, a tiger mother or a dragon mother, lovingly, right? Yes, yes. And, we, and they they fight at all costs for their children, and they won't let their language stand in their way, right? And so, yeah, I I, I love that. I also love that there is always food involved in parent teacher conferences. My parent, my mother was always like, when I when I know that uh, I tell her that there's a conference coming up, she's like. I'm gonna go to the grocery store and get some ingredients for the egg rolls. I was like, yeah. yeah, you know, you know yeah, what it is, right? right. That's it's the way a, it is. That's the way it is. But um, that's you know, that's that's something that you know, if people, you know, and people think I joke about this, right? When we when we talk about food and the importance of food, that's that's important, and that's a way for for families to connect, you know, especially families who who want to be in, involved who but they can't be because of certain things because you know maybe they're they don't feel like their language is is good enough to like communicate what they need to communicate but but they could cook right and that's what you know my wife's mother that's how she connected she was a great cook and she was you know she was like i can cook i can like you know i can I can contribute in this way. And then, you know, maybe you can understand me a little bit more. Right. Right. And you just spoke to all the multilingual teachers out there or teachers of multilinguals, because we have something called assets based uh, instruction. Yeah. And we say, what can you contribute from your experience? Not saying, oh, what are you lacking? It's saying, what can you contribute? Right. So your, exactly. your wife's mother was like, I can do this. I can cook. And that's more than enough. Oh, yeah. Right. Let's end with, uh, I have just one. Uh, can you tell us about, well, I listened to your other podcast conversation. You talked about uh, parents reading to their children in their heritage language. Why should we do that? Well, I think when parents read to their kids, right, you, you serve a lot of purposes, right? You, you build language skills. Right, you make a personal connection. You, you it's quality time, right? And uh, and 
and you associate joy with reading, right? So for me, you can do that in any, any language, right? And you should do that in the language that you're pretty good at, right? If, if you can only speak Vietnamese, then you, then by all means, I, I, I say you do that. You, you, you have that quality time with your kid, right? You build language skills in Vietnamese, which is important. Right, and then you, and then you associate joy with reading, which can will translate down the road in their lives. And so I think that's that's definitely something you do. And so for us educators, right, Tan, it's like we. You, so what do we? Has, how do we support that? Right. Well, one we can, you know, maybe help parents understand how to do that at home. Right where they can stop and ask questions, right? Have those conversations in their language, in their home language, uh, where they can, you know, go back and forth with kids instead of just reading straight through. Um, and, and two, it's providing books, right? It's, like I said, there are more and more books that are, you can get copies of Harry Potter in, I think 65 different languages, you know, worldwide. So, you know, you can, you can, so there, you can find those books, right? You can find those bilingual books, multilingual books. And uh, as educators, that's, that's something that we're responsible for. It's like, okay, so when we build those classroom libraries, when we build those lending libraries, uh, let's make sure that we have those books that are available so that parents who are, you know, reading Spanish or Ukrainian, um, Vietnamese, Mandarin, whatever it is um, that they they can access that, and then you know that addresses some some of the need in terms of one of my my conditions, right? It's clock. It's like making sure that you have independent reading time and reading time at home um, because. A lot of families don't have that. Um, they don't have access to those books or they don't have the, the strategies or the skills to, to work with their kids at home. So that's how we help them. Yeah, I think the research on our side says that when students have literacy skills in one language, that's directly transferable to another language and that comes from yeah. Dr. Cummings. Right? My last question is, is traffic light teaching. What do you ask teachers to stop doing red light start doing yellow light and keep doing green light hmm. in terms of hmm. working with refugees or in literacy? Well, that's a good question. Um, so I'd say maybe the first thing to, to stop doing is to, I think you've maybe touched on it a little bit in terms of like looking at immigrant refugee students from a deficit lens. Right. And, and I understand at the campus level, right, the stresses and the, the difficulties that people have. I, I know it's a tough, tough job, especially now. Um, and I know that, you know, when you get a kid who, a new kid in your class who comes in, has no idea what's going on, right? 
it's it's I, I can I can imagine the anxiety because you want to do what's best, but then you're like, how do I do it? Um, but then you look at the 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 you know the assets that they bring to to the classroom, right? Their experiences. So I'd say stop looking at it from a deficit lens. Um, keep doing those. Um, I would say. I would say keep trying, right? Keep, keep working at it, even though sometimes, some days it might be very difficult and it might be very discouraging because um, kids need you and, and keep an open mind, keep, keep on having an open mind and to be open to their experiences. I was just talking to a friend of mine um, who's a principal uh, in my former district and he was talking about how they just they just received enrolled like five six families from Afghanistan, and uh, he said they're you know they, some of the girls are really sweet they're just really quiet and you know he was kind of keeping an eye on them uh, because they had nothing when they came to the school I mean they had nothing and so the school kind of got together and and got furniture for the families got clothes and all that stuff but he he said it was really sad because one day they they had their monthly monthly uh fire fire drills and so you know it's no big deal you just the alarm goes off and then every, you know they kind of line up and go out as as you know and uh the little girl just sat there and started crying when she heard the alarm i mean it just like you know just kind of triggered something and so it's it's like you know you, you you keep an open mind and try to understand that you know these kids are coming from different places right they're, they're they may be coming from places of trauma of distress and you know they've lost everything and so you want to keep on doing that and the green light start doing start doing i would say if you haven't done this start thinking about the work with the immigrants and refugees how it's not just esl right it's not just you know english as a second language but it's 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 more than that right it's it's engaging you know the, the families and the students and, and and building those bridges you know that that aren't just language based but also cultural based and and uh you know and and, and creating a a home you know a new home for them in in your school in your classroom and so yes they they need to learn english they need to be proficient fluent in their target language. Um, but, you know, they're humans and they, you know, they need to feel safe. They, they need to, to connect. And so I know a lot of people are doing that, uh, but it's always a good reminder that, you know, it's, it's not just ESL. It's not just, you know, English as a second language. So, yeah. Well, 
Thank you for that. I think I'm going to hark back to what you said, whereas curriculum is only half the instruction. Right? Yeah. So let's end with reading of one of the preludes. You can okay. Which one you like. And you can read let's see. So this is the first prelude. Um, I've shared this with a, 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 at a few conferences um, just to kind of introduce myself. And so I'll, I'll just read this. This is uh, Refugees Among Us. <clears throat> I have no childhood memories of being read to at home. It's not that my parents were neglectful or absent. It's not that they didn't believe in the importance of reading to children. They just couldn't read the books. In late April of 1975, my parents made a quick decision that most of us can't even fathom. We were living in South Vietnam, and it was almost certain that our country was going to fall to the communist north. Fighting had intensified in the capital city of Saigon, and my father, who worked as an electrician at the U.S. Embassy, had heard whispers from the Americans that they were leaving within days. The writing was on the wall. The Democratic South, without the military support of the United States, would crumble immediately. My father would be considered a traitor for working for the enemy and his punishment would have been severe. And if he were lucky enough to avoid a death sentence, he would surely endure a lengthy sentence in a re-education camp. And when the US-backed president, Wynne Van Til, resigned on April 21st and fled the country, the decision was made. The very next evening, my parents hurriedly packed two bags of clothes, about $10 worth of Vietnamese currency and a gold necklace. They knew at least the gold was worth something. They, along with my maternal and paternal grandmothers, my six-year-old cousin, my eight-month-old brother, and me, almost three years old at that time, left our house for the coastal city of Vung Dao, several hours away. They had planned to meet with some relatives who had connections to a shipping business owner who would charter a boat to a neighboring country such as Malaysia or Indonesia and seek temporary refuge there. When we arrived on the dock in the middle of the night, my parents realized that they didn't have enough money to cover the fare for all of us. Dejected, we returned home to Saigon. The next day, my dad went to work at the embassy. One of his coworkers was shocked to see him and said, you need to get out, it's over. We lost our country and they're flying us out. He handed my dad an official looking document written in English and told him to make a copy of it and add the names of all the family members who would be leaving. So that night, my dad on a borrowed typewriter made an almost identical copy of the certificate that would allow us to board the buses at the U.S. Embassy that would eventually take us to Vincennes Airport. He could have waited for an official certificate, but that was a risk he was unwilling to take. In the middle of a cold morning on April 25th, 1975, we ran up 
a ramp into the open belly of a C-130 military plane, joined hundreds of other frightened and confused Vietnamese, and flew away from the only country we'd ever known. Saigon fell to the north a few days later on April 30th. The Americans had left and the Vietnamese, the Vietnam War was officially or unofficially over. Well, Dr. Vu, you know, you can take your preludes and just take them out of your book and, and then republish them as a children's book. Mm. Your writing is a gift to our field because it lands in our hearts and your book is also there to help us advocate for immigrant refugees. So thank you so much for your time. This has been a wonderful, heart-opening conversation. Thank you, Todd. Appreciate it. Before we recap this episode, I have a favor and an invitation. My favor is to ask you to please review this podcast if you found it valuable so that teachers like you become inspired and informed in their advocacy work. My invitation is for you to enroll in my scaffolding learning or teacher collaboration courses. I've taken the principles that I've learned from experts in the field. I've applied them to my classes. I kept the things that worked and I'm sharing all of them in these courses. I hope you consider enrolling. Now, onto our recap. Were you not moved to tears by Dr. Vu's reading of the prelude? I was. But not just because of the beautiful words he wrote, but because it mirrored in me my experience and that of my family. I felt seen because I was represented. Through representation, I felt valued. Because I feel valued, I am reminded that I belong. When I feel a sense of belonging, I engage with community and the community is enriched by my engagement. This is why we need to have books that mirror our students' experiences so that they remember that they too belong, that they too have a voice and that voice is worth hearing. Thank you for listening. I'll see you soon. Be safe and be rooted in peace. It's your turn to play Traffic Light Teaching. Tweet at me either your red, yellow, or green light from this particular episode.